right. I'm just going to dive in today. Um, good morning again. Good morning. Uh, you can click through a couple times. I had the passages up. That's all right, Tom. Okay, so where we, we left off with things, uh, Papa Joe, last week, he's really talking, he was talking to us about not only does God love us, but he actually likes us, which is groundbreaking stuff, I think. And it's very consistent with what Paul is writing to the Colossians, which is exciting because I feel like I can just build right off of what Papa Joe was saying. When I was talking uh, last week, I spent some time going through, or two weeks ago, I spent some time going through the hymn that Paul wrote, which is really just extolling who God is. It's just saying, this is who God is. This is his character. This is his heart. This is his love for us. And then he's going to contrast it to this reality, um, which is what I'm going to talk about in verse 21, which is, this is who God is and his character and the way that he approaches his creation. But then this is the reality of who we are apart from him. Um, This past week began Lent for us, and Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And I had put up um, two slides during Ash Wednesday. I think it's a really helpful sort of picture to hold as we go through these passages. And hopefully I can unpack them. But they deal with kind of this dual act of repentance and confession. So it's when we recognize who God is and who we are in light of him, that should provoke something inside of us, which is repentance and confession. So these, and I really, I, uh, I wanted, I can't remember where I got this quote from, but I think it is phenomenal. And I tried this week to find out and I couldn't find it. But so th- as we hold repentance and confession in our head, when you think of repentance, I would like for you to think of the idea of aligning your life to the reality of God's nearness. Um, I think the way that that can be read can be very sort of religious. Like, God's constantly looking over my shoulder. I better not do anything wrong. So I want to be mindful of that and say, that's not this. (laughs) It's not, okay, God's looking over my shoulder. I better not do anything wrong. I better, you know, dot my I's, do my T's and X's, and everything's perfect. It's actually more written from, I think, what Jesus' prayer is, And what he teaches his disciples is our father in heaven. Now, certainly a father looks at their child so that way you make sure that they're not doing something really, really dumb and and kind of prevent them. I do that all the time. Um, But this idea that God is near, he is Emmanuel. So what does life look like if that's true? The Bible teaches us that it is true. But what does that look like in our lives personally? So repentance is really this activity of saying, Maybe for a while, I haven't acknowledged his nearness. I haven't been able to receive his love. I haven't pursued his love. So I'm kind of, my back is to him. So then it's in a realignment to say, I acknowledge that you're near. And that's why I say, I I wrote this for confession, which you can put up, Tom, Um, which is to say out loud. And I say put out loud in quotes because I think confession can be a quiet act inside of us. But also it can be something that we do externally as well with our words and and often in community too. It's to say out loud the reality of the ways we have run, hidden, or rejected the the loving nearness of God. So I think what God does when he shows us that he's near, it provokes something inside of us that says, I want to draw near. 
And because I want to draw near, I acknowledge or observe all the ways that I haven't. And so it's to say out loud. I just think simply in relationships. Like, you've gotten in an argument with somebody before, right? Maybe, potentially. <laughs> and if you, if you ever want to, like, reconcile with them, there's this really difficult thing that you have to do, especially when it's a really good fight. You have to apologize, right? And really, a healthy apology is this activity of this. <laughs> it's saying out loud all the ways that I've run or I've hidden or, and rejected your loving nearness. And we're like, and we have to sometimes like work ourselves up to that. And a confession is really saying, I acknowledge these are the ways that I'm doing this with you, God. You've been here all along. I'm the one that's run away. I'm the one that's hidden. I'm the one that's rejected your nearness. So that dual act of repentance and confession, I think repentance is really a posture and confession is really verbally articulating what's in my heart, in my acknowledgement, that awareness. And so we see, uh, you know, holding on to that, I'm then going to move into the passage here. So Paul has written this beautiful hymn talking about all the ways that God is, and hopefully it provokes repentance and confession in us. But, but Paul doesn't assume he says something that we should be thinking, I think, in which the Colossians should be thinking. It says, and, and you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his flesh, fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. I'm going to trip myself one of these days. Okay, so let's, let's hit the first verse for a second. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, Paul, obviously, is first talking to the Colossians. But he's also talking to us, too. Um, I have this important question, uh, which is, have you ever felt estranged before? Let's talk about that. What, what is that feeling provoking you? Maybe you can think about the situation. What does being estranged feel like? Empty? Lonely? Don't fit in. What else? I heard something over here. Depressed, alienated, alone. So it's a really good feeling, huh? Rejected. <laughs> um, when we talk about the idea of being estranged, do we really care about estrangement if it's not somebody that we're close to? Not really. I mean, it's a negative. Like that, that, that simple act of rejection and separation. But I think estrangement, specifically that word, is that feeling, that deep sort of rejection and all of that comes from somebody that we care about, that we love. And suddenly they're not there. And we're left with wondering why. Now, this idea of estrangement here that Paul's writing on, it's not just that he's saying that we were estranged before God. That there was some sort of distance. This morning we sang chasm, that word of chasm. And it's such an interesting tension because what we saw with repentance and confession is we're acknowledging that God is near. He's Emmanuel after all. So this idea of estrangement really goes back to this idea of not being aware of his nearness to us. That it's almost like, um, 
I immediately think of the time a few months back where I shaved my beard by accident. <laughs> and my kids were like, yeah, yeah, that was April. I've tried to estrange that from my mind. Um, but, the, but that act of my children, like, I know you, but who are you? <laughs> like, what, there's something really different about you. I don't know how to relate to you. Like, your voice sounds familiar. You're the same height. You look a little bit lighter, right? I think this is this idea of estrangement. God is near, but we don't even know how to approach him. And so he's saying you were once estranged and hostile in mind. Now, when you have, you've been scared in the dark before, somebody pops out and you're like, immediately there's this hostility. It's that fight more often than night or flight. I think that estrangement and hostility go hand in hand. If I don't know you and I don't know how to relate to you and you may even be potentially threatening to me, naturally that provokes hostility. If I don't, I mean, we could be, if you think about relationships and friendships, we can have the best intention for somebody and just do it in such a loving way and they're like, yeah, I don't want to receive that at all. And they actually become hostile towards you because they don't, Receive your love. Instead, they're saying, you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to manipulate me or control me. Just examples. Now, what's really interesting about this text is that at face value, it looks like estrangement from God. But what Paul was talking about here is it's not just estrangement from God. It's estrangement from his people as well. It wasn't either or. So when he's writing, and this is something that I read in one of my um, my commentaries, Marianne Thompson was the one that really pointed this out. As she said, is that what this is really acknowledging is that relationship provokes community and, re- and, and togetherness. And so when you are estranged before God, you're estranged before his creation. It's not just that you don't know how to relate to God, you don't know how to relate to his image bearers, which is really... So now we start to think about the things that we see in the world. If we don't know how to relate to God and we feel estranged towards him and hostile towards him and we're surrounded by image bearers every single day, if we don't know how to receive God's love and love God, how are we to love one another? How are we to draw close to one another? How are we, like when somebody really hurts us or offends us, how are we not going to be hostile without the love provoked by God? And so Paul is pointing out, because of estrangement, not just to God, not just to the people of God, certainly Israel, but then also the wider community of church, there's hostility. And because of hostility, what's the next natural step? Evil deeds. Because there's nothing provoking us towards love of one another, so (laughs) it's better that I hate you, that I treat you with harm. And so Paul is acknowledging, this is who you once were. But then he says once, because that's past tense. He's saying this is now present tense. But why is it present tense? He says he has now reconciled in his fleshy body, or sorry, fleshy, fleshly body, Jesus has been eating too much, I guess. I don't, oh, gosh. 
He has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. So remember that him was saying this is who God is and he's really pointing out to the Colossians, you don't need to look anywhere else to understand who God is. Look to Jesus. He's above all things. He's the author and perfecter of all things. He is first in all things. So yes, this is who you once were, but because of his magnificent work, you're no longer estranged and hostile and provoked to evilness. But at first, as we learned in previous weeks, he loves us first. And so he says, he has now reconciled. So it's this act. Um, I want you to hold in your mind, when you apologize to somebody and it's a heartfelt apology, how does that feel internally? Do you feel a sense of relief? Why? Why do you feel relief? Yeah. And I 100% agree with all of that. It's unleashing this burden. It's the recognition. It's the, the repentance confession activity of saying, man, I was in the wrong here. And so we get that out. But there's still something about that which is like me, me, me. Not in a selfish way, certainly. But there still is, it's my posture. But why is there a sense of relief? When you apologize. We're getting there. So now it's me, now it's you. What I'm trying to point out here is this idea of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? It's not just words. There it is, coming back together. It is me and you. And we've hurt each other, we've offended each other on purpose. Sometimes by accident, but let's be honest. <laughs> Usually it's on purpose because <laughs> we're super healthy. This, me, and you. And we're, posture-wise, we're, we're slowly turning away from each other. You've hurt me. You did this. You, 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 you. And then it's like, well, me? I didn't do that. You did that to me. Suddenly we turn into a three-year-old and a seven-year-old arguing over a Pop-Tart. Um, <laughs> this is not a true story. Um, but, that, but that's it. Like, we, we devolve from the maturity that we had. And suddenly we're like, well, you hurt me. And, I, uh. and meanwhile, if there was an artist kind of portraying the scene, they could just draw a big, dark, black line with charcoal in between us. And it gets darker and darker and darker because because we're breaking each, other, each other's image. Not only have we broken our own image by hurting one another, but we're breaking our perspective of one another's image. So we can't see each other even for the way that God's created us to be, which is his image bearer. So it's just this thick cloud of darkness. And reconciliation is like taking a fan and blowing it all away. And suddenly I see you for who you really are. And I can embrace that and come close to that. And you can do the same for me. And this is what God's doing. He's saying that I did, I became broken. Instead of the brokenness in between us, I became the brokenness so that you can have life. 
so you can be reconciled, so you don't have to be estranged and hostile and live in evilness anymore. I became the brokenness so you can have life. That's the in-between. He's the perfect, Scripture describes him as the perfect mediator. And that's where this, this whole reconciliation process is really legal language. It's not just legal language. But it's saying all of these things where I could say you're accused and you're wrong and you do this, and, and I could hold all these things over your head because we're really good at that. God doesn't approach us that way anymore. Now, part of the reason why Paul is intentional about putting, I'm going to keep on saying fleshy, aren't I? Fleshly body is because it doesn't just end with this idea of like the soul, right? Like this metaphysical, philosophical idea of the human soul. No, he's saying not only did he do the work, like he died on the cross, but to prove that he was victorious, he was resurrected in what? Flesh. Fully God, fully man. And he was resurrected in that way, showing his victory over the sin and death, over the brokenness, over the evilness, over the hostility, over the estrangement. So suddenly, death becomes life, and life becomes this invitation towards life for one another. And so through his death, it says that we are presented. Um, have you ever given a really good gift before? Like, you just know this is the gift, right? You're like, yes. I even see it on your faces. It's almost like you wish the heavens would part open and the light would come down as you're <laughs> giving this gift because you know this is the one. And when they open it, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait for you to be so excited. Yeah, or you hope they will at least. Like, yeah, look at me. In some weird way, I, I see Jesus doing this. Because part of this is, yes, in a selfish way, we want to get filled and like, yeah, we bought the perfect gift. Look at us. I know you the best. Whatever. Set that aside for a moment. But if you are God's beloved son and daughter, like he just loves you. As Papa Joe says, you are his favorite and we're all his favorite. And he's going before his father because he knows the work that he's done, which is you are a new creation. And what does he do? He presents. And like it is an hallelujah moment, not because of you, but because of what he's done. So what does it say? He presents you holy. Now remember when uh, in verse 2, in chapter 1, it says to the saints. That's the same word, saints and holy in Greek. So he's saying these saints, these holy people, why? Not because of all the things that they've done, but because of what I've rendered for them. Presents them as holy and blameless, and then says irreproachable before him. Uh, I wrote down because I really appreciated um, the word irreproachable. Free from accusation. Holy, blameless, free from accusation. Do you see yourself in that light? Well... I mean, maybe here, like theologically, but immediately when I read that text, I'm like, holy and blameless and irreproachable. Who are you talking about, Jesus? That's not this guy. Because we're, we're so aware of the ways that we misrepresent this. And so Paul is emphasizing to the Colossians, and I think God emphasizes to us, 
because of Christ and his work, we are holy and blameless and without accusation. If that's true, and I'm not just su suggesting that it's true, I'm proclaiming that it's true, shouldn't that reorient every single thing that we do and that we are? And so that's what Paul is putting forth to them, is that because this is true, this is fact, black and white fact, there's no gray area here, this is true. He keeps going and says, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith. Um, now, it's really easy to fall again into this religious trap where it's like, well, I've got to maintain my holiness and I've got to maintain my blamelessness and irreproachability and so I can't be accused. And that's not the case here. It's not something that you could do. Yesterday, well, I'll say this. Um, you can click one more slide uh, for me, Tom. This is more for me so I don't forget. Um, yesterday, uh, Judah came up to me and he said, hey, Dad, I want to play the guitar. And if, How long ago did you give him the guitar? Over a year ago, huh? Yeah. So he gets like this little itch where he's like, I had to play the guitar like he's Eric Clapton or something. I don't know. And it's been a while since we did it. And so I had to tune the guitar. And if there's anything that you need to know about me, there's a reason why I don't play instruments too. That's just not in my wheelhouse at all. So I'm downloading an app and I'm like, okay, how am I going to tune this? Because you got to tune it. Otherwise, it sounds even worse and it's already going to sound because he doesn't know how to play. <laughs> right? So I'm holding my phone and I'm strumming it, and it's like taking forever. And I'm like doing this, and, I'm doing, and it's like, no, you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, I know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And as I was praying this morning, I just realized that is so much, a, that's like a perfect metaphor of the religious life. When we're trying to sink, realizing that we're already in tune with God because of what he's done. Like it can become, we can become so trapped in, okay, I got to get my G right. And we're, it's too tight. Now it's too loose. Now it's too tight. Now it's too loose. And meanwhile, as we're going about life strumming, it's like, oh my God, this is horrible. And it's so easy to fall into that trap where we're trying to be in tune with God. And what Paul is pointing out to them is that th that's, no, stop. <laughs> you already are this. And because of that, what does it look like to be secure in that? Uh, I'll, can you do two clicks? Because this is an important explanation. This was, for this passage, this changed everything for me. I was reading uh, N.T. Wright's commentary on this, and he said, provided that you continue. And of all the different words that, that struck me and were important to me about this text, the word that continue was the one that really caught me off guard. Not because... I, I was approaching my understanding of continue. It's just like, well, continue, like keep on doing, right? But in this context, in the cultural context, continue means something completely different. For me, continue is moving forward. In this context, it's staying in place, like focused on the locality of it. I mean, it, so what it actually, in more sort of general terms, it means established, firm, or secure foundations and superstructures. So let's put this in the context of the, vet, uh, of the text. Provided that you remain in place or in the locality of it. So why? Because of the secure, established, firm foundations and superstructures. 
So you're securely established and steadfast in the faith. So you remain. It's not this religious activity where we're trying to tune ourselves to God and have the beautiful like strum, right? The hidden chord for God. Yeah, but it's not just, that's the thing is it, it isn't just about what we do. It's the posture of who we are. Because the reality of the Colossians is that they're struggling with, is, is this God over here? Is this God over here? Is this God over here? They're chasing after a God when Paul's pointing out, Jesus is right before you and he's everything and all that you need. So remain in that. Build on that. Stay firm in that. And so then he says, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel, uh, there was this quote that, that also N.T. Wrote, N.T. Wright wrote regarding that. Uh, Tom, you could, you could put it up. It says, painstaking work at every stage of building results in an unmovable structure. And if I could summarize what Paul is saying, he's saying this. Is that we are holy and blameless and irreproachable because of the perfect work of Christ on the cross. Resurrection reveals that for us. And so we can remain in that good news. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to look anywhere else around us. That can set the trajectory for everything. But that doesn't mean it stops there. I remember, uh, and we live in an earthquake zone too, but I remember in Peru, one of the things that always baffled me is people would have a piece of property and it would feel like it would go like a mile deep and it would only be as wide as this space right here. And then they would spend months excavating dirt. What are you doing? Why? And it was because they were getting the foundations right. I mean, we're talking 10, 12 feet deep of just poured concrete. Just posts on posts on posts. Months worth of work that you'll never even see above the ground. But if you don't have that, and an earthquake comes, which they inevitably come, what happens to the structure? It falls apart. And so Paul is saying, like, this is the painstaking work that you're going to have to do. It's the excavation. It's putting in the posts. Remaining in the gospel, not flitting about so that way you can find the next thing. Stay in place. Go deeper. Have posts inside of it. Have your foundation strong because, well, he knows. I mean, literally, he says, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. And yeah, he's writing it from prison, but he's still living a good life because he knew what life was before. See, this is the crazy thing about life with Christ. It doesn't matter about persecution or suffering. All those things are promised. It's a superstructure. It's not like this dinky little like wooden cabin in the woods. In Christ, we are meant as the body to be a superstructure. Where we're called into the transformation of the world around us through Christ. I mean, think about that. A superstructure. Hundreds and thousands and millions of people as one body going about in the world wherever there's brokenness and saying this is where Jesus is. That's a superstructure if I've ever heard of one. But it takes painstaking work. 
And it's really easy to get distracted. And it's really easy to hear the noise and come, become focused on the noise and to lose sight of the holiness and the blamelessness and the above reproach posture that we have in Christ. That's why it's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And that proclamation is like an echo over and over and over again. How many of you have been discouraged in your faith before? Yeah. I feel like I should do like Simon Says or something like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Proclamation isn't just a one-time thing. It's consistent. It's repetitive. In fact, my struggle this morning was like, well, we all know this. But do we, though? Yeah, we know it. Sure. But it's a simple thing that needs to be proclaimed over and over and over again. And that's what I love about the Lenten season is it makes us confront our estrangement and hostility apart from Christ. And it helps us to embrace the hope that we look towards on Easter morning. It's a rhythm that we hold. So Paul became a servant of this gospel. He said, I'm going to give my entire life to this gospel. This, and remember, what does gospel mean? Good news. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All those are, those are gospels. It's good news. He's saying, he's saying, in jail, I've become a servant of this good news. It has to be good news for you to write that from the jail. It just has to be. I'm a servant of this good news. And I'm taking time to share that good news and remind you of this good news. So we'll continue um, in this series, but I, I want you to consider this week, not trying to tune your guitar because you're already perfect before him. Because of his work, not yours. Because of his work, not mine. You're blameless and holy so what is, well, it was up there. <laughs> what does a painstaking work look like? What does it mean to really dig deep in your walk with God? What does it mean to be brave enough to confess and repent that, God, I've been so focused on being near to that thing that I've forgotten how near you are to me? That's a, that's a bold and brave act to confess that and to say, I'm turning back to you in your anxiety or in your stress or in this broken relationship, whatever it may be? What is the painstaking work that God's provoking? Because there are stages to this. Not formula, but there are. There's just moments of different sort of awarenesses because it's an unmovable structure. Let me, uh, let me pray for us this morning. God, I, I thank you for the faithful way that you approach us and love us and that where we feel shaken up and broken and hurting that um, that you aren't you're the you are the unmovable foundation you are the rock and you have proclaimed that we because of your work are holy and blameless and above reproach that we no longer are estranged that we no longer have to live in hostility or in in evil actions as a result of that but we are new creations before you and because of that that truth lord i pray that you can um, show us how you're inviting us into the painstaking work of living holy into that 
um, living wholly into the truth that we are your beloved daughters and sons. God, teach us what it looks like to embrace that in every area of our life. Show us what it looks like to live worshipfully. And teach us um, how to forgive ourselves and be gracious with ourselves as you are gracious with us. And protect us from this religious trap of trying to live a perfect life or trying to get it right. Um, teach us what it looks like um, to go hand in hand with you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.